Good morning. First Corinthians chapter three, if you would. First Corinthians chapter three. Our subject for the weekend is what I think is one of the greatest subjects in the Word of God. It's the Bema or the judgment seat of Christ. And I'll go ahead and say now, I, I have no idea the how common of a subject this has been in this assembly or in, in ministry that you've heard, but I've been very surprised uh, that at, the, at the, the little information that is out there about the judgment seat of Christ, with as important as this subject is, um, we, we ought to be living every day for the rest of our lives in light of the things that we're going to talk about this weekend. And that's no exaggeration whatsoever. Our brother prayed last night that we would live this day for that day. I think that's how you put it. Martin Luther said, there are only two days on my calendar, today and that day. And really, a, a committed believer, a zealous follower of Christ, that's the way they live. And so I'm thrilled that we're going to be taking up this subject this weekend and uh, very much looking forward to the time with you. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 9. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, there's a couple little phrases here that I, want to, that I want to highlight. At the end of verse number 10, I would suggest that you would highlight or underline this in your Bibles, at least write it in your notes. It says, let each one take heed how he builds on it. If I had to pick kind of a theme for the weekend, and I don't mean other than the judgment seat of Christ, but within that topic of the judgment seat of Christ, if I had to pick a theme, I would choose that phrase. Let each person, this would in this context it would be, let every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ be careful how you're building on the foundation. That is such a good admonition in this passage. Be careful how you are building. Now, for sake of perspective, I will come right back here. But I do quickly want to go to Revelation chapter 20, if you would, just for the sake of clarity. Once in a while, I hear Christians, uh, and I totally understand this, I mix up names all the time, but I hear Christians refer to one judgment, and then they'll use the name of another judgment. And I just, there are two judgments at the end of time, and I just want to briefly read about this other judgment. So Revelation chapter 20, and verse number 10. This would be the great white throne. This is the other judgment at the end of time. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night 
forever and ever. Now, here's another phrase in the Word of God that I would suggest that we underline or highlight. Not because it's joyful, not because it's happy in any way, but because it's vitally important. The other thing is in our society today, and I don't mean the world, I mean in the church in North America, this doctrine is very much under attack. Conscious eternal punishment is a doctrine that's under attack. People don't like this doctrine, and they're trying to find ways to deny this doctrine. Well, there it says it right there. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What kind of life do you have as a Christian? You have eternal life, right? Praise God. Well, you look that up in the, in the Greek, and, and um, you follow this through. What kind of death does an unbeliever have? They have eternal death, right? You really have to play games with Scripture to deny this doctrine. But that's exactly what the evangelical church in North America is beginning to do. In fact, some incredibly popular um, parts of that group are beginning to deny this. So, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Just for a minute here, and this is all the time we're going to spend on this judgment, but just for one minute, try to imagine the terror of standing before God in his holiness and having books open that contained your sinful deeds, right? Your life. Each person will be found guilty before God. They'll acknowledge willingly that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. But that confession and that bowing at this stage of time doesn't bring any kind of a salvation, right? Confessing and bowing in this life, believing on the Lord Jesus here, that brings salvation, but not here. So every unbeliever will stand at the great white throne, they'll be proven guilty before God, and they'll be cast away from the living God unto conscious eternal punishment. Boy, it's vital that we it's vital that we preach these things, and it's vital that we understand the mind of God. Uh, I couldn't help myself but say again, praise God that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not headed to this judgment. In fact, this, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 3, um, it says that it's possible to end up with no reward. Now, that's hypothetical, but it says that your reward can be burned up in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And then what I want to highlight right here, at the end of verse 15, I don't mean to be flipping around too quickly, but in verse 15, it says, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. And just so it's abundantly clear, every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is headed towards the judgment seat of Christ, which you'll hear people refer to as the bema. A bema is a raised seat or platform. It's just like that platform right there. I won't walk up there because my voice wouldn't make it to the microphone for recording. 
but, but a judge would stand on a raised seat or platform just like that, and then, and then um, the person coming into the judge's presence would approach and either stand below or, or with the judge for the purpose of review, and from that bima, the judge would dispense judgment. Bima or the judgment seat is actually a generic term. There are many bimas, there are many judgment seats. Now, biblically, we're going to be looking at the judgment seat of Christ, the one where every believer is headed to. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you're headed towards the judgment seat of Christ. Nothing that you can do, including suicide, including many different things, nothing that you can do can change that, that you are headed towards the judgment seat of Christ. Um, if you're not a believer in this room today, you are headed toward the great white throne judgment. And the only thing that can change that is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and, and be saved. Um, a Christian in the flesh is capable of committing any sin. The Bible clearly bears that out. Um, praise the Lord that if you're a believer in Christ, you're headed for this judgment. And um, even if you lose all of your reward, and that's hypothetical, and we'll talk more about that. But even if all of your reward is burned up, according to this picture, it still says you will be saved, yet so as through fire. So we're going to do an overview of the judgment seat in four, in four simple points from the scripture, hopefully to kind of take in the broad picture. Point number one is that the judgment seat is revealing. It is revealing. It will reveal what the reality of your life truly was. I haven't been here at least in several years, right? And so you don't know um, the reality of the vast bulk of what my life truly is, right? Right? There's times where we think certain things and we think, oh, praise the Lord that I'm the only one that knows that, right? Um, but, but there will be a day, according to this text, there will be a day when what is in the darkness will be brought out into the light. And you can see that in verse 13. It says, each one's work will become clear, I have that underlined in my Bible, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And so you can see the point that Paul is making is very clear, that what is in the darkness, the reality of what your life truly was, will be brought out into the light. And I don't mean that all the Christians will be sitting around in a massive cosmic movie theater and they'll play all your sin for everyone to be disgusted by. I don't mean that at all. Um, but what I do mean, according to the picture, is that when you approach Christ, and I'll put myself in this, when I approach Christ, there will be a massive pile sitting next to the judge. That pile will be made up of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, or stubble, depending on your translation. There are three things that burn, and then there are three things that do not burn in that pile. Whatever your pile is consisted of, someone or something will come by, light that pile on fire, and the wood, hay, and straw will burn up. Those are the things that are done for Christ. This is so important. With false motivations. Things that are done uh, in Christian service, building on the foundation that the Lord Jesus never would have asked us to do. Does that make sense? When I first heard about the judgment seat, I was in Bible college, sadly enough. Um, and, but at that point, I learned about this. And my first impression was gold, silver, and precious stones was, was us trying to serve the Lord. Wood, hay, and straw was us going out and being worldly and maybe partying or, or things like that. That is so wrong, according to the text. All six of these things are building on the foundation that is Christ. 
you look at this context and it's Paul, a master builder, who's building on the foundation of Christ. And then he, he admonishes them, let each one take heed how he builds on it. We have to be careful how we build on the foundation. Now, gold in the scriptures is very straightforwardly giving glory to God. So what we do in the word of, or in our lives that gives glory to the Lord is gold. Uh, the word glorify means to raise or elevate one's opinion of. So if you live your life in such a way that people think more highly of Jesus Christ, that's giving glory to God and it's building up gold at the judgment seat of Christ. Praise the Lord. Uh, the second thing is silver. You trace this through the scriptures, you come up with service and redemption. And so you combine these biblical thoughts. You have the service of redemption or soul winning. So you, first of all, gold, give anything you do that gives glory to God, that makes people think highly of him. Silvers, the service of redemption, soul winning. And then precious stones. The New Testament speaks of the, of the Christians as living stones. And so if you love the Christians, give a glass of cold water in his name. Go and visit a hurting Christian. Use your break on Sunday mornings rather than just rushing for the donut table and the coffee. Look around prayerfully at who maybe needs to talk for 15 minutes and then just listen and then pray with them at the end of it. It's amazing how much ministry is done just by listening and then praying with someone at the end of it. Just simple things like that. We would call this the normal Christian life. Well, that's, that's building up the body of Christ or precious stones. You know, it's interesting. Just in those three things, you have a whole world view. I would like to spend the rest of my life building up gold, silver, and precious stones. Uh, do all things for the glory of God. That means Facebook, right? Whether you like Facebook and you stay away from it for the glory of God or whether you're using Facebook for the glory of God, right? Now, I know that'll bristle some people. Like, they'll think, oh, that's, you know... I like to put up a verse every day on Facebook. I played football with a lot of people that do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, and they see that verse. And I know they see it because every once in a while you'll put up something different and they'll make a little comment on that, right? You'll put up some little funny thing and they'll make a comment. And so I know they see that day after day after day. Um, so anything you do or use for the glory of God, gold, soul winning, silver, uh, precious stones. So that really is a whole life. Do all things for the glory of God. Love the Christians and build up the body of Christ. Seek to win the lost on behalf of Jesus Christ. Well, those are the things that don't burn. Now, I'll make one more little comment about the things that do burn. When they light our pile on fire, and when we see the ugly uh, wood, hay, and straw, when we see that burned up, we're going to be saying, praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. That is gone. The Lord is not going to make us carry through eternity our wood, hay, and straw. Those things that were done for false motivations or, or whatever, it, whatever it is. I'll give you one example. We, 1997, my wife and I flew into Ecuador. And um, we went at one point during that three-week trip in Ecuador. We went into the jungle. We visited this tribe with 100 people. 99 out of the 100 people had professed to come to know the Lord Jesus. And their lives were radically changed when they, when they came to know Christ. The one person in that tribe that didn't make a profession of faith in Christ was the witch doctor. And so the new Christians, they didn't know what to do. So they got together. They talked about it. Finally, they went to the witch doctor. They have huts with no doors. So you don't knock on doors in Ecuador. And they cup their hands like this. And then they go... Right? That's their way of knocking. So they come to the, the, the doorway and they go, and the witch doctor comes to the door of his hut and they say, we are now followers of Jesus Christ. 
we cannot follow you anymore. Unless you get out of our tribe, we'll kill you. <laughs> and they, <laughs> they were completely 100% serious. And the witch doctor knew that they were serious. They would have taken him down to the river, which is 25 yards down the hill, and they would have drowned him in the river, right? So he packed up his belongings and he went to go find a different tribe to live in. Now, I'm just using an obvious illustration um, for the purpose that it is an obvious illustration. Does Jesus Christ want us to kill the witch doctors? No, Jesus Christ desires that the witch doctors be saved, right? And so that is an act done by zealous young Christians, and it was done for Christ, right? But it's something that he never would have asked those Christians to do. This happens all the time, all the time this happens. It's, in my mind, maybe it's because it's my world, but the church in North America, boy, this happens all the time. People are doing things in the name of Christ and for Christ, and even their heart, as far as I can tell, their heart is right, right? In the sense that they're really doing it for the Lord, but it's either ignorance of the word of God or whatever other reason, you know, you want to put in there. It's not something the Lord would have them do. So that is wood, hay, and straw. So you could actually live your life for Christ, pour yourself out, building on the foundation, get to the judgment seat, and if you have not done it according to this book, then there will be wood, hay, and straw waiting for you, and you will see that burn. Now again here, this is so vitally important. People will say, but aren't there no tears in heaven? We have to be careful. We have to be so careful. There are no tears in eternity, right? We have to be specific in, in the way we talk about these things. He will wipe away every tear in eternity. Boy, I look forward to that day. No more death, no more tears, no more sorrow. Yeah, I look forward to that day so much. But the judgment seat of Christ, there could easily be tears. I mean, nothing in this book would say that there wouldn't be, right? Even all the way through the, the millennium into the great white throne judgment, there could easily be tears. Now, eventually, our Savior, our champion, is bringing about a day where there'll be no more tears. But the severity of this judgment is biblical. And if we water that down, we miss the vitally important truth of all of these things. Okay, so number one, it reveals the truth of what your life genuinely is before the living God. So let me ask you, on behalf of Jesus Christ, whom, according to this book, I'm supposed to be representing this weekend. So on behalf of a Savior that you will see face-to-face -face someday, if you're a believer in Christ, at this judgment, what does your life consist of right now? And I'm not even encouraging you to, to think it through and judge it yourself. I'm really encouraging you to ask Him, how much of my life is wood, hay, and straw? How much of my life just needs to go? What am I going to be embarrassed about at the judgment seat of Christ? And then what is gold, silver, and precious stones? It's a vitally important question, isn't it? Are you willing to live your life for the judgment seat of Christ? So gold, silver, precious stones. It'll show what the reality of our life is. Now, point number two. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the next chapter. And let's read a few verses starting in verse 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself. Yet I am not justified by this, 
but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Now, that little phrase at the end, I'd like to highlight that. Each one's praise will come from God. To be balanced, at least in an attempt to be balanced, the Lord is so overwhelmingly gracious. He is looking for ways to reward the Christians because every reward that he can legitimately give out brings more glory and shines on the beauty in a more brilliant way of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So each one's praise will come from God just to try to balance it. Now, point number two in my outline is reviewing. Reviewing. Judge nothing before the time. Because when the Lord comes, he's the judge. And Paul says, I don't even judge myself. It, it, I really like that concept. Introspection does not perfect a person. The life of faith, the life of cooperating with the Lord, the life of allowing him to work in and through us and the life of Christ to flow through us. He who began a good work in us will complete it. So, so um, reviewing. I, I hope and trust and pray that point number two is almost infinitely more motivating to you than point number one. Now, what I mean by that is this. Point one is the reality of your life is going to be put on display. The reality of your life, what your life truly was, is going to be seen by, by, by the masses. What was in the darkness will be brought out into the light. So there is a motivation in that, absolutely. Now, point number two is you are going to look into the face of Jesus Christ who hung on the cross and paid the price for your sin. You're going to look into his face and he's going to ask you questions like, what did you do with the spiritual gift that I gave to you? And then you're going to answer that question. I see here that you had um, $575,000 of disposable income over the course of your adult life. What did you do with that? And then we get to answer that question. Did you love souls the way that Jesus Christ does? Did you pour out for souls? Did you pour out for the Christians? Did you seek with the help of an omnipotent God to do all for the glory of God? You're going to be able to answer these questions and you're going to look into his face. Now, point number one is motivating. Point number two, if we are rightly focused on the beauty of Jesus Christ, point number two is infinitely more motivating than point number one. Does this make sense, what I'm saying? Honestly, okay. We're going to review our lives with Jesus Christ. I was sitting in my office. Um, this is my, my happy place in the world, and I, I just love, I love my office. And I was sitting in my office, in my chair, at my desk, with my books and my computer, and uh, sitting there studying this topic looking at this point, point number two, reading these scriptures, and temptation came into my mind. Does that ever happen to you? So I'm sitting there, and I'm being tempted, and I'll tell you that the struggle was bitterness. And so this thought comes into my mind, and then I have to make a choice as a follower of Jesus Christ. Am I going to enjoy that thought? Am I going to enjoy that sin? Sometimes when te temptation presents itself, it's like dipping your foot in a pool of temptation and either you can just sit there for a time and, and enjoy it or you can realize it's wrong confess it forsake it and ask the Lord you know run to the Lord from sin well I sat there being tempted 
studying the word of God, being tempted. And then I just thought this simple thought, looking at point number two, I thought it's not worth it. It's not worth it to sit and think about those things. It's not worth it to sin against the Lord, nor to sin against my brothers and sisters in Christ. Someday I'm going to look into the face of Jesus Christ. It's not worth it. That's point number two. We're going to give an account of our lives specifically to Jesus Christ. Can you imagine approaching Jesus Christ and hearing the words, well done? Can you imagine that? Good job. Well done. You ran well. In fact, if you want to put it in the context of the churches of Revelation, those that overcome, I will grant them to sit with me on my throne, a position of honor. I just, I can't imagine. But it's right there in the scripture. So point one, it's revealing. Point two, it is reviewing. Point number three, it is rebuking. Rebuking. The judgment seat of Christ is a time of rebuking. Now, since we're right here, look at chapter 3, verse 15. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So, the rebuking. What is the loss? Uh, contextually, I think it's very straightforward. The loss that this speaks of is a loss of eternal reward. So you have the opportunity to live this life for Christ. Um, my dad went home to be with the Lord three and a half years ago. And uh, in, on, on a Sunday, I was in North Carolina. On Monday, we were driving home from North Carolina. In fact, I think if I remember right, we drove part of the way home on, on the Sunday afternoon, and then we drove the rest of the way on the Monday I got home, we threw our bags in the house and went off to the hospital. I still remember my little mother collapsing on me when I got to the hospital. And um, that was Monday. Tuesday, my dad couldn't get out of bed. Wednesday, they were going to intubate him and do a lung biopsy. That's the day that they, he told me what he wanted me to speak at his funeral. Uh, Thursday was the first time anybody said cancer. Friday, the doctors uh, said we can't treat him. And Saturday night, the transition from Saturday night into Sunday morning, my dad went home to be with the Lord. It all took place just incredibly, incredibly quickly. Uh, when, on Friday, when we as a family went back to tell my dad there's nothing medicine can do for you, we didn't know he was going to be gone unless in about 24 hours. But when we went back to talk to him, we told him that. We cried together as a family. We prayed together as a family. Little by little, family members kind of drifted out of the room in intensive care at that point. And I was sitting there with my dad. Um, I was my dad's best friend. I uh, love my dad deeply. I look forward to seeing him again. And I pulled a chair up next to the bed, and I sat down, and I said, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? And the first thing my dad said was this. He's, he just heard, basically, you're going to die unless the Lord miraculously heals you. And the first thing he said was, there's more that I wish that I would have done. And I'll just tell you, my dad gave me permission to do this. And I know my dad. I love my dad. Um, <clears throat> and I told my dad, I look forward to seeing you with your reward. But my dad said, you tell the truth about my life um, and use it any way that you think would help. Uh, I watched as a young man, I watched my dad chase his tail. Um, 
in business. Uh, he had a full-time job to support a family. That's an honorable, godly thing to do. Uh, he had a second, uh, second job, a part-time job. He sold everything you can imagine, and he was very upfront about it. He had a second job for the purpose of trying to hit a financial home run, and he did that m most of my childhood. He was just chasing a financial home run, and my dad had a good heart, and he really did love the Lord. Um, he would say, imagine what we could do for the Lord if we could just hit, hit this financial home run, and he bought into a lot of the lies, a lot of the the things that multi-level marketing businesses tell you. Um, and he spent a lot of time during my youth, during my childhood, uh, chasing that. Uh, my dad grew more in the last decade of his life than he ever grew before. And I had the privilege uh, as a son of watching my dad grow like mad in that last 10 years. I would call over and I would say, I would say, Dad, what are you doing? He'd say, Ezekiel. <laughs> and uh, he just grew and grew and grew. He told me at one point, he did not know he was going to die at 66. But he told me at one point, he said, I do not want to get to stand before the living God and never have read his book. And so he just hammered his way through the word of God. He just grew and grew and grew. Praise the Lord. But I watched him waste that time just to be very straightforward. And he knew that he had wasted that time chasing things that don't matter at the judgment seat. And when we told a dying sick man that medicine cannot help you, that's the first thing that came out of his mouth. There's more that I wish that I would have done. Well, understanding these things, that's proper, right? Now, you and I have the incredible privilege right now of asking the Lord, what is it in my life that I'm going to be ashamed of at the judgment seat of Christ? And be radical. I don't encourage you just make a little change, right? Just, just make a little change, right? Ask the Lord, what in my life am I going to be ashamed of? And mortify it. Cut it out of your life. Don't, don't, I'll put it this way. Take these things as seriously and as weightily as we ought to as followers of the living God, followers of Jesus Christ. The judgment seat of Christ can be a time of suffering loss. I can only imagine standing there and watching this pile burn and having little or nothing uh, to show. Uh, this, very clearly, this very clearly shows that that's a possibility. In fact, if you're going to be honest with the text and honest with the church around us, and the Lord knows I'm not, I have no ounce of criticism in my heart or my mind. In fact, it's a, it's a sorrow to me. I want the church to do well. But if you look around, there are many people that are genuinely saved people that, that as far as you can see from their life, they're not, they're not being poured out for gold, silver, and precious stones. It's, their lives are full of selfish ambition. And it's their agenda that they're following, not Christ's agenda that they're following. So um, if I'm going to be honest with the text, it's, it's a clear possibility that they could suffer loss. Now, there's another text here that goes with this same point. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I understand that you're in a Bible study right now in this chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's great. Praise the Lord. This is a great chapter. I'm just going to zero in on one little portion in the middle of this chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in verse number 9. It puts it this way. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good 
or bad. Please notice that. In fact, I would encourage you to underline or highlight that. The judgment seat of Christ. Now, we're not talking about someone's eternal salvation. We're talking about reward. But within that category of reward at the judgment seat of Christ, you can receive good or you can receive bad. Now, I'll be quick to say that contextually, I would see the bad as clearly as the loss of reward. Right? If you, if you receive bad, it's a lack of eternal reward, which, which to be frank, I don't see any other way than this would be a shame. This would be a, a horrible shame to a Christian. You go give your account, you get your reward, it's almost nothing, and then you walk away from the judgment seat with very little to show from your life. Do you think you'd be ashamed? I would be ashamed. In fact, there's an aspect that I live in fear of that. And I think it's a healthy fear, as this passage bears out. Paul lived in fear of that. We'll look at that this weekend. I discipline my body lest I be disqualified, Paul said. If Paul lived with a healthy fear of that, I suppose that you and I should too. So he says here, um, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. If you don't have a life verse right now, Um, I would encourage you to adopt that verse. And I mean this literally. Like say, if you don't have a verse that you want to characterize this year, this is the verse. This coupled with a similar thought in Thessalonians is what I kind of adopted this year. I change my life verse whenever I want to. Um, but, But if you don't have something specifically right now, what a great verse. Therefore, we make it our aim, our goal, our ambition, our focal point, that which we are driving for to be well pleasing to him. What a, good, what a good verse. Why would we want to make that our goal? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now we'll talk more about this in a, in a message to come. Notice verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Is there an aspect of the judgment seat of Christ that brings terror, fear? Sure there is, right? There is an aspect of review of your life that brings fear. And that's a healthy, that's a healthy fear. Those that know their Bibles, like they may think, well, doesn't perfect love cast out all fear? Of course, right? But you just you have to keep these things in their proper context. There is a biblical aspect of being judged by a resurrected Jesus Christ that, that makes us think, oh, I have to take these things seriously, right? There's a fear, there's a terror that is, that is a good, um, healthy, biblical thought. So a lack of reward. And we'll just underline the fact that it is possible, biblically, contextually, it is possible to get no reward. Now, I also will be quick to emphasize that the Lord is overwhelmingly gracious, Right? I'm just going to be fair with these different concepts in the scripture. At least I'm going to attempt to be fair with them. Okay, so point one, reviewing. Point two, uh, no, sorry, point one is revealing. It'll show the reality of your life. Point two, reviewing. You'll go over it one-on-one with Jesus Christ. Point three, rebuking. Uh, The scripture is very clear that this could be a time of suffering loss, depending on the choices that you've made and what you've chosen to live for. And then point four, and this is the primary thought of the judgment seat of Christ, rewarding. This is the primary thought. The Apostle Paul did not look forward with dread um, to the judgment seat of Christ. He was living his life for the judgment seat of Christ. 
I'm only 38 years old, which by not everyone's estimation, but many people's estimation is very young, right? In fact, people still, I'll take this as long as I can get it, people say, you're a nice young man. (laughs) Praise the Lord, right? Now, I know 38 by most people's definition is young, but very honestly, I feel like I've lived, I've lived, um, the kind of life where if I found out that I was going to die in a week, um, it would be very, very hard to say goodbye to my wife and my kids, right? I don't want to leave my wife or my kids, um, and I want to fulfill the work that the Lord has set before me, but I just feel like I've lived, I've lived such a full life that I could already die, like the scripture speaks of these men, full of days. Um, the idea is that the Apostle Paul wasn't he wasn't just trying to live the longest life that he could, right? That wasn't the goal. The goal was the judgment seat of Christ to be poured out. And he knew, Second Timothy makes it clear, he knew that his time was coming to a close. But he said, I have been poured out like a drink offering. That is not arrogance, right? He just knew this is, this is what I've lived my life for. He's the author of these things that we're looking at this morning. He knew the reality of the judgment seat of Christ. He knew that the primary thought of the judgment seat of Christ was, was reward. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 3, if you would. There's a few verses that we didn't read a moment ago. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll start in verse number 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." So again, the primary thought of the judgment seat of Christ is the receiving of reward. We have a gracious God who is looking to give away reward because it glorifies, it glorifies his son. Now, we already talked about the picture here that the Lord gives of reward. That's gold, silver, and precious stones. I'd like to take the rest of the time that we have and look at the other primary picture in scripture of reward, and that is the crowns. Depending on how you divide it, there are four or five crowns. Um, I've always said that there are four. I'll go ahead and give you the fifth one. We'll look at that as well. Um, and I'm just going to list, list these off for you um, just for sake of time. The Number one, the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness. It's for those that love his appearing. Now, forgive me. I will get the references for you. I just realized... I'm using a new Bible, and um, I just realized I have them in my, I have the notes in my Bible, that, and I don't have them in this Bible. But the, so I'll get these for you. I'll get them tonight, and then I'll give these to you tomorrow for anybody that's interested. The crown of righteousness for those that love his appearing. It's for the obedient. If your dad, when you're a little kid, says, um, I want you to mow the lawn. Uh, I'm headed out. I'll be back in a couple hours. I want you to mow the lawn. Every little kid has to make a choice, right, at that point. If you, if you honor your father's wishes, then you love your father's appearing when he comes back. If you don't honor your father's wishes, but you play, right, you can tell I've lived this, um, then, then you dread his appearing when he comes back. It really is that simple. If we're living for Christ, then we love, we love his appearing. That is called the crown of righteousness. Now, the crown of rejoicing 
the crown of rejoicing. This is the soul winner's crown. The soul winner's crown. Now, earlier I said gold, giving glory to God. Silver, um, which speaks in the scripture of service and redemption. Um, I wouldn't personally stake my salvation on, on the hermeneutics of silver leading to the soul winning in scripture. Um, but I make that point with a clear conscience because this point is abundantly clear. Paul says to those that he was used to win to Christ, he says, you are my crown of rejoicing. You will be in the presence of Christ at his coming. In other words, he had been used of God to lead these people to Jesus Christ. Someday, Paul would be in the presence of Christ. They would be in the presence of Christ. And they would be Paul's crown of rejoicing. Does that make sense? And so it's a soul, it's a soul winner's crown. So the scripture clearly makes that point. That God says, there's, there's a crown for those that are obedient and live for me. They, and love my appearing. And then the Lord says there's a crown of rejoicing. That's the soul winner's crown. I can't read through um, these portions and think through these things without thinking of my brother-in-law, Micah. He, he was raised um, by a, a woman, um, a homosexual woman, who was a minister in the Metropolitan Community Church, a homosexual denomination. And um, he, he saw my little sister in nursing school, and he went, hmm. Right? Um, someday when I get to heaven, I want to say, okay, stand up if you were led to Christ by a pretty girl. And I just want to see, I want to see all the people. Right? Well, Micah looks across the room and sees my sister and says, she's cute. And uh, so he starts to try to talk to her. She, very wisely, I might add, uh, she talked with him and was friendly. And, uh, but then she passed him off to my brother, Todd. Todd said, would you like to have coffee? He went out with Micah. And, um, and they had coffee, and then he asked him at the coffee shop, would you like to have a Bible study with me? Now, Micah had been taught all his life, which this is the common thought out there, that you have to find what's right for you. And so Micah had took, took, um, taken pieces of Jehovah's Witness uh, theology and Mormon theology and Buddhist theology and Muslim theology. He had also taken bits and pieces of movies he was a big movie fan, and so he would take bits and pieces of truth from movies, and he put it all into his basket. In his basket, he'd say, this is what's right for me. He's a religious-minded person, or you might say a spiritually-minded person. And so he said, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll do a Bible study. Now, my brother Todd didn't have any idea how to do an evangelistic Bible study. None of us did. This was a long time ago. We were all just kids, young adults starting out. And so Todd came and he said, what should I use as my text for the evangelistic Bible study? And I said, I don't know. And so he thought it through and he chose for the text to go through Survey of Doctrine by Charles Ryrie. That was his text. And uh, he just started through it. He thought, well, it's truth, right? And that's what we, Micah needs, truth. So they would get together and they'd go through chapter by chapter. And two months in, this was in my parents' basement, two months into this study, Micah looks at Todd and says, it's really that simple? And then he starts to cry. And Todd said, yeah, it's really that simple. And he said, all I have to do is accept Christ, and Christ did it all. He said, he said what does this verse say? And Micah read it, and he said, yeah, that's what that says. And he gets down on his knees in my parents' bedroom with my brother Todd, and he cries out to the Lord, and he's saved. Now, I wasn't physically there, right? I've just heard them talk about the story. But every time I think of this, the crown of rejoicing, I think of Todd and Micah in the presence of Jesus Christ at his coming. And they'll remember that. There's nothing in this book that makes me think that they won't remember that day when Micah went from death to life. 
And then Todd has the privilege of being in the presence of Christ with Micah. By the way, this is such a miracle. And I want to shout this from the rooftops. Micah's mother is saved and in fellowship in our assembly. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it is such a miracle. The first time I ever talked with this lady, her name's Bonnie, we debated the validity of John 14:6 for five or six hours. We just sat there and debated the validity of I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And here today, she is a saved woman in fellowship in the assembly, sitting there submissively uh, taking her role in the body of Christ. And anyways, it's just a miracle. And, and to be involved in the act of soul winning. Uh, and I also might say um, uh, seed sowing would very much be included in this. Some sow, some water, the Lord gives the increase. And so if you're a sender, that's, that's involved in the work of soul winning. Uh, you give so that people can go around the world and tell people about Jesus Christ. If you're a goer, right? Now, Jesus Christ, of course, was both. And if we're going to honor him, there'll be times in our lives where we do both of those things. But whatever our specific role, um, we have ladies in our assembly that bake cookies for evangelistic Bible studies. That is part of soul winning. We have people that say, I've invited all my neighborhood and I've got four people that want to have an evangelistic Bible study, but I really just am terrified of the thought of leading it. Would you come lead the study at my house, right? They do the inviting. They open their home. That's soul winning, isn't it? And then someone else comes and leads the study. So any part of it being involved in soul winning would lead to this crown of, of rejoicing. Crown number three is the crown of life. The crown of life. This is the one that people sometimes refer to as the martyr's crown. Again, forgive me. This is it's bad preaching that I just now realized. I don't have those references. It's from James in Revelation 2. The crown of life. I don't have the specific references for these, and I apologize. Be faithful. Uh, it says Satan is about to throw some of you into prison. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So if the Lord asks you to die for him, then, then in your faithful unto death, then you get the crown of life. And then you look at James, patiently enduring trials and pressing on through trials, not taking the easy way out, but enduring through trials patiently all the way to the end, crown of life, right? So crown of life if the Lord asks you to die for him, crown of life if the Lord asks you to live for him. Do all Christians endure to the end faithfully? No, not in this context. This is a sad thing, right? I love the people that I'm referring to. Some people start well. Some people run well. Some people bear much fruit for the glory of Jesus Christ. And then at some point when the Spirit of God convicts, they blow through the road sign. And then when the Spirit of God sets up a roadblock, they blow through that. And then when the Spirit of God does that again, they blow through that. And then their conscience becomes seared. And then pretty soon another person finds out about it and they're rebuked but they still keep going and then several people find out some people end up with a devastated life to put it in the terms of paul they end up with a disqualified life that doesn't mean that they go to hell a proper understanding of this book would show clearly that doesn't mean that they go to hell but they're disqualified in their practical service and their usefulness for the lord does this make sense this crown is for enduring faithfully to the end. 
I live with a healthy fear of not enduring faithfully to the end as well. Um, I pray by the grace of God that the Lord would would uh, see me through and help me endure faithfully to the end. Now, crown number four is the crown of glory. This is from 1 Peter 5. I think it's around verse number four. Again, forgive me for not having the exact reference. The crown of glory. This is the shepherd's crown. So those that take on the work of shepherding in the local assembly would be the immediate context of 1 Peter 5. Those that lie awake with stomach aches at night, bearing the burdens of the sheep, praying for the sheep. Those that spend their time leaving the home, right, working hard all day and then leaving the home to take care of the things that need to be done. The life of a shepherd. Uh, It has a crown. It's a good work. It's a joyful work. It's a hard work. Uh, But there's a reward specifically for those shepherds, and it's called the crown of glory. Now, girls, um, contextually, I wouldn't say that the crown of glory in its specific context would be given to women because it's a crown that is specifically given to shepherds in local assemblies. But we already talked about the fact that precious stones is anything that you would do to build up the body of Christ. And there's an obvious biblical work for older women to do in training and teaching and I would say shepherding younger women according to Titus chapter 2. There's a clear work that women uh, are supposed to do. And so there is easily as much shepherding work for women to do in a local assembly as as there is for men to do in a local assembly, right? Easily as much to do. It's, of course, a different role, and it's in a different context. But so I wouldn't call it the crown of glory, but, but clearly there's a reward for women that love the, love the Christians, that serve the Christians, that serve the Lord by serving the Christians, that wash the feet of the saints, you know, all of these things. So, so really, there's no limitations here biblically at all. It's just semantics in that sense. You can have as much reward as you want. You can have as much as you want to go after. We'll look at that this weekend. The, the scripture is abundantly clear. This is all in front of you. You can go get as much as you want. Men, women, whatever. Now, there's one more crown. Um, let's go ahead and turn to it since we're in 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians 9. This, um, I've taught this subject in several different places. And men that I greatly respect uh, have come up and said, now what about the fifth crown? And, uh, and the first guy that did that, I said, well, what do you mean? He said, the imperishable crown. And, uh, and then I taught this at a different place, and another guy that I respect came up and said, what about the fifth crown? Um, I looked at this, and I don't see it as a fifth crown. Um, but but um, anyways, I mean, just for what it's worth, I don't see it. I see it as a description of all the crowns. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in verse number 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. We for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Men who say that there are five crowns, this is what they point to. And I'm just giving this to you for your your information. Um, They would say the imperishable crown is what you receive for um, mortification of the flesh uh, through through the power of the Spirit. Um, Practically speaking, it's through discipline. 
uh, I discipline my body. Now, again, I'll just state my case one more time. I just don't see that. I see it as a description of the kind of crowns that we're running for. Uh, an earthly athlete runs for a crown that perishes. It goes away. In fact, in, in context, this was a, a green, literally a living green wreath that was woven for, uh, for an athlete. And they would put this crown on their head and not long at all, that wouldn't be green anymore, right? And now, of course, they would keep it. But even then, it's going to perish. It's going to go away. Um, they run for an imperishable crown. We, Sorry, for a perishable crown. We run for an imperishable crown. So I see this as a description of the kind of crowns that we run for. I, I think it's a very minor point, but I just wanted to throw it out there for you. So the primary thought of the judgment seat of Christ is that it is rewarding. If we're honest with the texts that we look at, then we clearly see that it could be a time of rebuking, uh, depending on the choices that you're making in your life right now. Um, it will be a time of reviewing your life with Jesus Christ, and when you walk away from the judgment seat of Christ, uh, it will reveal what the reality of your life truly was. There was a king who was coming into a town uh, of his subjects, and he's riding along with this huge entourage, and he didn't know what was ahead of him, but there was a beggar who got up that morning, and he was excited because he knew the king was coming into the town. And he, he got his little wooden bowl, and, um, and he got his, his um, things together, and he went and he sat by the city gates. And as people passed by, uh, he said, do you have a gift for a poor beggar? And people threw a little bit of rice uh, in his bowl. And one person even threw a couple coins in his bowl. Um, people were in a good mood. The king was coming. And so he's sitting there. He's got this bowl with a little bit of rice and a few coins. And then he hears the ground start to rumble. And uh, he can tell the king's coming. And so his heart starts to beat fast and he's getting excited. And uh, when, when the rumbling gets loud, he starts to cry out at the top of his voice, uh, king have mercy on one of your subjects king have mercy the crowd kind of tried to quiet him and he just got louder and louder and louder and to his surprise just as this thunderous uh, entourage was passing through he yelled out as loud as he could and all of a sudden everything stopped the king got down off his horse he came over to this beggar and he stood in front of the beggar or actually he knelt in front of the beggar and he held out his hands and he said you called yourself one of my subjects. What do you have for your king today? And the beggar was shocked, and he didn't know quite what to say. He, he um, said in his own humble way, um, I was really hoping that you, that, you know, to receive a gift from, from your majesty. And, uh, and he said it again, what do you have for your king today? The beggar didn't know what to do, so he looks down at this bowl. He sees rice, he sees coins. He thinks, man, those coins, I hardly ever get coins like that. And so he reaches into the bowl. He takes three little grains of rice, and he puts them in the king's hand. He's embarrassed at, at the smallness of the gift, but he puts it in the king's hand. And the king says, thank you. He closes his hands, and he walks back to his horse, gets up on his horse, and he rides into town. Well, the beggar is discouraged at this point, and he's thinking, this is not how at all I pictured this going. And uh, he goes back to his little hut. He pours his bowl out on the table. Uh, he begins to get things ready to prepare his rice, probably his only meal for the day. And then he walks over. He's got his coins off to the side, and he looks at the rice, and he notices something funny. And so he leans down, and he picks up a kernel of rice, and he realizes it's shiny. And then he sees another one, he picks it up, and then one more, he picks it up. And he's got these three shiny kernels of rice. So he walks out into the sun, and he realizes that in his hand, he has three pure gold things of rice. 
And then he realizes to himself, and I'm telling this story on a very specific point. He realizes, everything I gave to the king, I received back in gold. And then he says, if I only would have known that, I would have given him everything I had. The whole point of what we're talking about this weekend, the whole point is that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, that didn't leave us in the dark. He didn't spring this on us when we get into eternity. He said, everything you do for me, everything you give to me, if you build on the foundation according to this book in a way that selflessly glorifies me, everything you do for me, you'll get back in gold. Now, we're just barely scratching the surface. Um, the next message, Lord willing, we're going to talk about um, common misconceptions of the judgment seat of Christ amongst God's people. Tomorrow, Lord willing, uh, we'll talk about uh, things that Jesus Christ specifically laid out in the scripture. We'll have too many points to actually get through them, um, but I'll give you all of them for your study. Um, things that Jesus Christ specifically said, if you do this, great will be your reward. And then tomorrow night, Lord willing, we'll talk about um, in detail that passage that we read, running the race as if to win the prize. Um, there's so much to this subject. It's a great subject. Let's just, uh, for now, let's just pause and close our time in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for not leaving us in the dark. Your son looked at his disciples in that upper room and said, no longer do I call you slaves. I call you friends. And he specifically told his followers that they were friends because he was letting them in on what he was doing. A slave does not sit and counsel with the master. A friend sits and is in the inner circle of the master, privileged to know the thoughts of the master. Father, we just want to give you thanks that you have told us the truth about these things. Father, please, we pray that the Spirit of God would move radically in this room. Lord, we need it, and we just want to confess that we need it so badly. Lord, I need it. If I'm going to lead my family the way that I should, I desperately need your help. Lord, I find in my Christian life that all I have to do is nothing. And six months down the road, I've let things slip into my life that I'm going to be embarrassed about at the judgment seat. Lord, we're not even talking about sin. If sin is an issue in this room, Lord, that's not even stating it accurately. The sin that is an issue in this room, we pray that you would deal with that. But Lord, we're really just asking that you would, by your powerful spirit, help us to see our lives the way that you do. The things that are a waste of time, the things that we're going to watch burn, improper motivations, improper ambitions, living for our agenda rather than Christ's agenda, not loving the saints, not thinking or talking about the saints the way Jesus Christ does, but rather thinking and talking about them the way Satan does. Father, there's too much to, to even attempt to name. Lord, we just, I just lift up to you every eternal soul that's in this room. You dearly love these Christians, Lord. And I pray, Father, that, that the Spirit of God would search us and know us. And, and please strongly help us that we would see our lives the way that you do. And that there would be choices made that really need to be made. Father, we don't walk through these things in the scripture as an academic exercise. We absolutely want to properly and rightly divide the word of truth. But Father, if we stop there, we're grieving and quenching the spirit of God. 
We want your application in our lives. We need your application in our lives. Father, we want to live a life like your son, and we want to live a life for your son. Lord, we don't want to ask you to help us to live great lives for God. We ask you that Jesus Christ would live his great life in and through us. Father, we, we just need your help, and so we just earnestly pray. Father, for those in this room that right now are headed to the great white throne, Father, we pray that you would please help them to take you at your word. Please help them to take their own soul as seriously as you do. And Father, help them to be righteously terrified of judgment to come. If they are not safe in the hand of Jesus Christ, Lord, please help them to take that as seriously as they should. We just commit ourselves before you. We take our little break now, Father. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.